Hey everybody, welcome to ATD Greater Atlanta's web series, Building Our Vision. Um, on Building Our Vision, we're trying to make sense of the monumental changes that we've gone through uh, just this year. Um, and in past episodes, we've talked a lot about how working from home has changed our lives totally. But now we're pivoting to a different kind of giant shift that we're experiencing, and that is a renewed spotlight on diversity and inclusion. Um, here at ATD Atlanta, we are committed to helping our members figure out how to incorporate diversity and inclusion and equity principles into their workplaces and figure out what exactly that means in 2020. Um, so here to help us with these heavy concepts is uh, Vicki Flyer Hudson. Um, Vicki is the Chief Collaboration Officer at High Road Global Services, Inc. She's also an author of the book Zen and the Art of Offshoring, uh, How to Build a Collaborative and Profitable Team with Your Partners in India. And last but not least, she is a total rock star. She's a singer <laughs> and a guitarist in two rock bands, uh, The Overtime Crew and The Spirit of Rush. Um, so welcome to the show, Vicky. We're so excited to have you here. Thank you so much, Naya. It's, it's great to be with you. I'm so excited to talk to you. Um, so first of all, I want to talk to you about your past um, as a backpacker, um, I heard a crazy story that you started a riot in India one time. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that? The story is totally true. It's on the internet. Uh, I wrote a travel story about it for a contest and it ended up winning. So it's out there now. But uh, yeah, so I grew up in LA where I had uh kids in my school from all over the world. So I was always really interested in other cultures from the time of my childhood. And I had one classmate in particular from India who used to tell me all these stories. She came in with a henna on her hands and she talked about the festivals and things. And so I think from her, I got a real just desire, craving to go to India. And that stuck with me all the way through adulthood. So in 1997, I made my dream come true, and I landed in Kolkata, India. But within two days of my arrival, I had started this riot in a train station. And basically what happened was, before I left for India, I think I had some of the stereotypes that came from the media back in the 80s and 90s around, oh, you know, the country is very poor, and there's so much poverty, and this and that. And so... I wanted to go over there, not just to be a tourist, but maybe to provide some kind of help, like volunteer work or something like that. And I decided to take a bunch of like medical supplies, you know, bandages and things like that with me and maybe volunteer in a clinic and donate the supplies. That was my idea. You know, I was 20, 20 something years old. So That's very nice of you. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, kind of, but I now realize what a stereotype that was and how simplified it was. But uh, so in the train station in Kolkata, I, um, I was sitting there reading a book waiting for a train and uh, an elderly gentleman came up to me who had a bandage on his leg and he was kind of reaching his hand out uh, asking me for money. And I had kind of decided I wasn't going to give money because I knew that could complicate things and that's the advice I was given. Mm -hmm. But I remembered I had all these things in my bag. And so I pulled a bandage out and I held it up and I said, would you like a fresh bandage for your leg? Because his bandage looked kind of worn out. And I ended up bandaging his leg and all of these people kind of crowded around to watch me. 
But long story short, some folks in the crowd were, were getting upset and uh, that I was doing this. And they were upset at the guy for accepting my help. And, you know, it was like, what are you doing taking medicine from these Americans? You're making us look bad. You worthless. You know? And yeah. it just turned into this big brawl. But honestly, it was a real wake-up call because I realized that I'd held this stereotype even before I ever left the U.S. And I, I realized I needed to let India be my teacher and not the other way around. And so I kind of dedicated the rest of my career to really exploring the complexities of the culture. And now it's, you know, my second favorite place in the world to be other than my own home <laughs> so that's yeah that's awesome it um, was a wake-up call <laughs> I can't imagine what that must have been like just being in a extremely crowded train station just people yelling like yeah, it was crazy and the police had come down with like big guns and I thought oh my, oh my gosh God. but I realized almost immediately afterward what a mistake I had made sort of doing this in a public setting without knowing anything. I'd been mm -hmm. there for two whole days. That's it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> and a couple of my Indian colleagues later said, you know, you really have to know the system. And there, there's like a free clinic up the street this guy could have gone to. And, you know, mm -hmm. so there was just, it really taught me about having the lens, you know, of, uh, stereotypes and and really needing to have deeper knowledge and understanding before you take action like that if you do it at all and I did end up volunteering about three months later in a clinic but it was run by Indians and they dictated what I did so I just told them tell me what to do and then I was actually being helpful yeah I mean <laughs> you got to learn somehow that's right <laughs> yeah you got to learn somehow and if your way is to start riots and then that's hey, how then it that's, is well and my uh lack of understanding has since been a a great sort of way that I can share that with others with my clients and say you know this is kind of where I started my journey and this is very easy to do. You know, humans have that natural tendency to put things into categories and lump things together. It's just kind of the way our brains are wired. Mm -hmm. And so I've been able to share that and many other stories of things I've done and overseas that, you know, <laughs> were just as a result of a lack of knowledge or a lack of self-awareness and things like that. Share those with clients and then share the journey of how to get out of that stage and into something more complex. Yeah. Um, so what... So you now are the Chief Collaboration Officer at High Road Global Services. Um, so what does uh, High Road Global Services do exactly? Yeah, so I founded the company back in 2004, and it's been an incredible journey, and it's evolved a lot since then. But uh, we mainly exist to help companies release the power of their global teams providing everything from cross-cultural training to global leadership coaching for CEOs to orientation training uh, for expats moving into the U.S. or out of the U.S. And we do a lot of uh, diversity and inclusion uh, work as well because those two things are not as separate as I think, you know, our industry once thought they were. Mm -hmm. And the reality is that companies leave so much on the table with their diverse workforce so even if there isn't uh, an active issue like racism or things like that going on, a lot of times they're just leaving on the table the kind of strength and 
incredible power of diverse teams because there's all these barriers. So it could be anything from inefficient communication to mistrust to different approaches to deadlines. That's a common one. Mm -hmm. And it's our job to help remove those barriers and help those teams get back to doing what they do best and leveraging the diversity as opposed to having it be uh, a challenge or um, a hindrance. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I think your point about our workplaces being comprised of so many different cultures, whether they be ethnic cultures or, you know, I mean, just different. We have so many different groups of people in the workplaces these days that we need to be really aware of where the other person is coming from and, you know, things like that. I I mean, I I think that's so, so needed in the workplace. um, Absolutely. And it's not just about being sensitive or empathetic, which, of course, is a big part of it, but it's really down to like saving time. I mean, uh, sometimes when two cultures work together, they have a different approach to how to like deliver bad news on a project that maybe is behind schedule. Mm -hmm. And without some sort of norming around that, there can be delays on projects. And, you know, so it's, it's very tactical, but it is also around developing self-awareness and empathy, things that are needed right now more than ever. Definitely. Yeah. And, And I think developing those things, you know, helps your business be more profitable is kind of what you're saying. I mean, you know, when 100%. we get down to it, <laughs> we can communicate yeah. effectively, then we're going to get things done faster, more efficiently. It's true. Painlessly. <laughs> I think the most common comment that I hear, particularly after I do my India US team building programs, is I wish we had done this three years ago because mm-hmm. if we had, we would not have had some of the headaches and, you know, some of the wasted time that we did. And, and, um, so that's, yeah, I'm constantly trying to outreach to folks in that proactive stage to say, if you're going to be forming one of these teams, do some of these things up front. And that way you have processes in place that can go forward from there. Yeah. Yeah. So do you mostly work with companies um, opening offices in India or do you work with other countries as well? Oh, absolutely. So uh, I've traveled quite extensively in the world. I've, I've lived in uh, India, Nepal, Thailand, but I've also worked in China, France, Belgium, Canada, several other countries. And I think that nowadays clients are, are they are still interested in culture-specific information, but I think having that culture general knowledge base or skills is important because now almost every team is global and mm-hmm. just learning how to work with people who are different from you or have different approaches in some way. And like you mentioned earlier, uh, not just with culture or ethnicity, but with uh, age and gender and all of these other components. So, but India has always been a passion of mine, yeah. I, I will say, and, and I still enjoy that work so much. I've been doing it since the beginning of the company. And I would say the focus is mostly on U.S. or Europe, India teams. Mm -hmm. So the office could be uh, like a large size company that has locations in uh, either the U.S. or Europe and India. And it's about how they come together Mm -hmm. because there are some significant differences, you know, how definitely how these two cultures work. And they have really I've seen a lot of impeding of communication and all that just because of you know, lack of knowledge about these different approaches. Definitely. So what, from a Western perspective, I guess, what are some of the biggest challenges that Americans and Europeans maybe experience when they're dealing with um, 
you know, their parallel Indian teams? Like what, what are some of the biggest gripes or, you know, whatever that you, that you hear? Um, yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> so <laughs> it, it's of course difficult to make broad strokes because there's so much diversity in, in each of those countries, but I would say that most of the challenges originate not from what you'd call objective culture, like the stuff like uh, what language people speak or what food they eat, but the subjective culture, the stuff on the bottom sort of of the iceberg, you know, you could say the values and beliefs and approaches. That's where things tend to really go wrong. So an example of that would be, you know, a lot of U.S. Americans really value the idea of egalitarianism and equality. I mean, we don't always live this, obviously, but it's just a value in the workplace that everybody's equal and, you know, you call your boss by their first name and you can disagree openly with that person if if needed in a respectful way, but it's still okay to say, well, I'm not sure if that idea is going to work. I think when a lot of U.S. Americans come into contact with Indian teams, particularly um, where there are people who are like over 35, Mm -hmm. right? Because the generational differences in India make a big difference, like they do everywhere. But Mm -hmm. the the challenge that they have is with with the value of hierarchy in India, that, you know, you have to get a lot more approvals from your manager. And, you know, there's not uh, necessarily as much openness with speaking up to the manager if you disagree, things like that. And while that's certainly not a broad stroke of all Indian workplaces, but mm-hmm. it, it is something that I'm still seeing a lot of in my experience mm-hmm. when I travel over there and, and that kind neither of need of to like check in always check in and, and show mm-hmm. respect to the boss and not say no, you know, mm-hmm. don't say no, you, you just say yes, and then try to figure it out. Mm-hmm. And neither of those value systems are better or worse than the other. But when they come in contact, I think, you know, American, U.S. Americans tend to think, oh, why are they being like so, you know, submissive or like they're not getting anything done because they're mm-hmm. just checking with the manager. They're not speaking up. They're not being creative or thinking outside the box. Yeah. And none of those things are true. Right. It's just a different approach and a different value system. And hierarchy has benefits just like egalitarianism or equality in the workplace does. Yes. yes. So that that is a major challenge and then the other piece is around the word no and the word yes that is still i think the number one breakdown mm-hmm. between us india teams is that you know the tendency to say yes maybe when a no or a maybe is is real the reality um is a real challenge because you know here in the us there's kind of an expectation that yes means yes and no means no mm-hmm. So again, neither is really better or worse, but those two things yeah. really can can clash. And um, yeah, do you think do you think that's because of like a a power difference almost? I mean, when an American team comes into India, you know, I mean, there's an idea that the American team is the boss, the Indian team is the subordinate. You know, just like the you know the reason people are offshoring to india is because it's cheaper to do it you know i mean like that's so and indians know that you know it's not like it's a big secret or anything i mean yeah absolutely so how does that that power dynamic kind of um affect things that is a brilliant observation and 100 percent accurate because what i have to tell a lot of my um, u.s clients is you have to recognize that a power dynamic exists whether you are aware of it or not And part of your job uh, as a U.S. team, particularly if you are hiring an Indian vendor as opposed to, you know, having a team where your counterparts, 
is to lead and behave in an inclusive way so that you get the best results from your team because nobody wants to feel like they're in the sort of subordinate position right. or and that is a gripe I hear from India is that you know they don't necessarily feel like part of the team they feel more like cheap labor etc mm -hmm. and so I really tried to coach my US clients on you know reach out these are your team members whether you work for the same company or not you are expected to achieve some kind of result together so that makes you a team mm -hmm. and I even created a model called divided ignited and united to kind of show the stages that offshore teams tend to go through and not all that many are in that united stage where they're fully like leveraging their differences and you know all of that a lot of them kind of stay in the divided stage mm -hmm. and they might get things done but it's not at the level that they could and not in an optimal way and there's a lot of frustration on on both sides yeah that wastes energy and time so I think that's very true. And I think, you know, it also pays to kind of think about like the post-colonial issue too, that mm -hmm. whenever, if you are a former colony of someone, of another country or another culture, you are going to have more sensitivity around that, about being told what to do and sort of being dictated to by the West or whatever. And Definitely. so I try to just help my clients be aware that that dynamic is there and, and think about how they can be inclusive of their team in India. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite parts of your book, the Zen, the art of sorry, Zen and the art of offshoring, um, is so you have this checklist where you list out all of the challenges that Westerners might experience with an Indian team, and then underneath it is all the experiences that Indians might experience with <laughs> Westerners, and then kind of at the end of it, you say um, the first step is to just acknowledge that these challenges are there, you know, and that kind of that's. Um, accepting your problems is a good first step and you say that concrete solutions do not always exist for every offshore issue um, sometimes the best you can do is learn to manage the tension of the situation um, and then you list out two proverbs you say okay so the protestant value is don't just sit there do something and then the zen value is don't do something just sit there <laughs> and I love <laughs> I love I oh, love, the, I love like, that you quoting that back to me I haven't thought about that for a while I just I yeah. just love that like zen um zen approach to business and to management I mean they seem very kind of worlds apart because right. business is you know competition and capitalism and you know all these you know let's make That's some money right. and stuff but then the zen approach is just like just sit there, just reflect on on yeah. the challenges that you're experiencing. And sometimes that's just enough. Like it's just enough to just know. Um, I love that. I love that. I love hearing that, that again too, because I think now with this kind of polarization that we're experiencing, especially around race, mm -hmm. this is a skill that is sorely lacking the ability to simply be okay with discomfort. And I have so many stories and so many experiences with clients and even with myself where there's there's a fork in the road where you're talking about something difficult like race or you know cultural differences that are challenging and you reach that fork in the road where you start feeling uncomfortable and the fork is either you could go left and just run away or lash back at somebody or you could just sit with the discomfort be okay that it's there and learn to acknowledge its presence and then kind of move forward and like Mr. Rogers, uh, you know, who is a children's TV host for those who might be from other cultures um, who don't know him. But great man. He said, what, what is mentionable is manageable. Mm 
And so I've had clients ask me like, well, should we bring up cultural differences? I mean, doesn't that seem kind of, you know, and my answer is always, yes, you should bring them up. Not bringing them up isn't going to make them go away. Yeah. And the same with things like race and other, you know, issues that need to be faced, not mentioning them is not going to make them go away. Yeah. And mentioning them is not going to make them more divisive. I know I, I do hear that sometimes, but it's it's just not true. It, it, it It's uh, putting so- something into the light and being able to then say, okay, now here we are. Here's our discomfort that we have around this. Now, let's try to move forward from there. But until you get to that stage where you can be okay with that tension and that discomfort, most people's response is to either just physically leave the situation this is why a lot of dei programs get dropped really yeah because people are not ready for you know the the kind of discomfort that can arise from being part of those kinds of programs Mm -hmm. so they either drop it you know physically leave uh, or they mentally check out Mm -hmm. or in a worst case they lash back you know at at the facilitator uh, yeah or or just people who are different from them you know they they sort of lash out so we have another option which is just to be like yeah we're uncomfortable (laughs) let's just mention it and let's let's be okay with that so that was definitely one of my questions is um you know in the past few months we've started talking a lot more about systemic racism about um you know these kinds of yeah, systemic issues. And people are a little uncomfortable talking about it because, you know, if you're white, then you might say, well, this is not really my fault. You know, I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't want to feel personally guilty for something that I didn't actively, you know, I don't know. There's all these kinds of um, issues, you know, and then like people of color are, are like, well, we're living, this is my life. You know, <laughs> That's I, don't, right. I don't know who yeah. else to talk to about this. Like, yeah. I don't know. So, I mean, there's, there's this huge divide. So what are your recommendations for companies that are trying to start this conversation and using words like systemic racism, you know, instead mm-hmm. of these kind of vague concepts <laughs> right. of equality and, you know, whatever. I mean, that's right. So how, how do we really drill down into these uncomfortable topics? So I guess there's multiple le- levels on which that needs to happen. And there's kind of a couple of different schools of thought. And I guess I'm an advocate for for both of these schools of thought or, you know, multiple approaches as opposed to one way is the right way. There's a great quote from the poet Rumi, and he says, uh, out beyond ideas of right doing and wrong doing, there is a field. I will meet you there. So I think for me, that sort of encapsulates that, you know, again, we have this fork in the road and part of our journey in it is to, to stop thinking of it as ideas of right doing and wrong doing and just think about it in terms of reality. So I'll give you an example. So in the book, How to Be an Anti-Racist by Dr. Uh, Kendi, he talks about we have to stop using the word racist as a pejorative and use it more as just a descriptor. Like, let's just get objective about it. If you say something that implies that one group of people is superior over another or inferior over another, that is a racist idea. You might not necessarily be a racist person as a whole, Mm -hmm. but what you expressed there is a racist idea. Mm -hmm. So it really helps to kind of try to remove the idea of, you know, accusatory pejorative 
types of things around racism and just start looking at it objectively and looking at the data around it, you know, because if you look at data and you look at objectively, systemic racism is real and there is no argument about that. So let's start dealing with it. But to your point, it is not easy to start these conversations and particularly in organizations that the organization as a whole and the individuals within it may not be ready for that yet. Mm -hmm. So one of the schools of thought around dealing with race in an organization is to meet people where they are. Now, this is a little challenging sometimes for people of color because they're like, look, we've been meeting people where they are for a long time. Yeah. And now we need to go beyond where they are. Yeah. You know, and I and I could certainly empathize with that. Um, so I think there's and then the other school of thought is to really push for like really bold action. For me personally, I think both it's an and. Mm-hmm. I think in, in the average organization I'm really a big advocate of leaders, like CEO level, you know, COO, C-suite leaders coming out and speaking out against systemic racism. And they are the ones that, you know, sort of lead that charge. Go out publicly, name systemic racism, name George Floyd, name it and speak it aloud and do it often and do it boldly. Mm-hmm. But when it comes down to like the individuals within the organization, you know, employees, managers, especially if it's a big company, not everybody is going to be ready for that level. Mm -hmm. So there is actually an assessment called the IDI, the Intercultural Development Inventory, that I often use to kind of measure. It's a psychometric assessment that measures on a development scale kind of where where you are in terms of intercultural competence and inclusion. Mm And I'll often use that to measure where people actually are so that I can design uh, solutions that fit where they are. Because if you do take them too far and they're not ready for like addressing white privilege and all of that, people will just shut down and leave. So I guess for me, it's, it's a both and. I think we need bold action and that mainly needs to come from leadership. And then we need also to design solutions that people can be ready for and meet them where they are, but push them to go beyond that a little bit. Yeah. So, yeah. so you think that it should come top down? I think it's both. Yeah. Again, it's um, if, if the leader is not on board, and this has just been my experience mm-hmm. of doing this work for 16 years now, if the top level leader is not really on board and pushing for those efforts, they don't tend to go very far. So a team can take on their local efforts, and which is, of course, positive. I mean, something is usually better than nothing in this case. Mm-hmm. Not always, but most of the time. But if that top level leader is not on board, most of the time things like policy changes and really systemic change just will not happen. Mm-hmm. And so you'll maybe get some behavioral change within a team but not necessarily the kind of change that you need to really address systemic racism, like hiring policies and things like that. So I think the top level leader really needs to be out there, you know, pushing for this if it's going to be successful. And (laughs) what people are doing at the team level is also very important, though, because they they have the opportunity to cascade it through the organization. So I think it has to be a joint effort. But without that top level leader being on board, it's usually just kind of tends to fizzle out yeah that yeah. makes sense so um maybe can we expand a little bit on your point about pushing people a little bit so yeah um you know let's say 
a company is trying to start the conversation and they're sensing some resistance or I don't even want to say discomfort, but just, you know, just kind of like, oh, this isn't really important to me or I, I don't think this is an appropriate topic for the workplace, you know, or whatever. I mean, yeah, whatever absolutely. the reasons might be. So how do you, you know, just push people just a little bit to being a little more open to talking about these things? Yeah. So what I find in my experience is it, it kind of depends on the context, because if you are, if you have a history as a company of systemic racism and, your employees of color are feeling really like unvalued and, you know, it's kind of at that stage, you may need a little bit more bold action. Mm -hmm. And that's where that leader really, you know, that top leader needs to really step in and, and, um, and, and design solutions with people of color. Don't, don't Mm -hmm. dictate what, you know, needs to be done, but sort of design those solutions with them and maybe push a little bit more, but if the organization is just dealing with what I would say call an average level of racism, which almost every organization <laughs> is. What a horrible term. <laughs> I, yeah, I, it is. It's terrible. Um, it's like the average racism. It's, it's, it's the norm, unfortunately. This but this with, is yeah. like this is like what we have to face, right? Yeah. It's, it's this is a time sexism. of average. That's right. Yeah, whatever. It, it's true. Yeah. And level. and I do see progress, but you know, it's um definitely. Yeah, I think there's a need to really reckon with it and face it head on. Yeah. But what I've noticed is and this is something I use in my personal life too. I mean, I have friends being part of the music community. I have friends from all over the political spectrum and, you know, is to just share my my own experience. So an example of that might be so I'm Jewish and and um while I can certainly because I'm white, I can certainly still walk around and not face, you know, discrimination. There have been some times where I have faced situations like that after people found out I was Jewish or, you know, um, my grandmother's cemetery was vandalized in St. Louis. So you probably remember that incident. Yeah. Uh, that was actually her, her cemetery. Oh um, we don't know if her headstone was damaged or not, but, um, you know, things like that. So. And they hurt, they hit, they hurt weirdly you know you're like oh, they I, do it's like I didn't know I would care about this so much but. I know <laughs> oh it was devastating yeah. beyond yeah. you know that I couldn't believe somebody would do that right. so it sometimes just being able to share your own experience and then be willing to just be self-reflective because I think you know that is the the core challenge not only with racism but with the cross-cultural challenges is mm-hmm we don't necessarily know that we have a system that we operate within. Mm -hmm. So in other words, as Edward Hall says, it's possible to grow up in a culture with little or no knowledge of the basic laws that make it work. Mm -hmm. So you can grow up in a culture and if you've not had exposure to different cultures, you don't necessarily know you have a culture and there's all these rules and norms that your culture operates by until you come in contact with a system that is different enough that it makes you realize, oh, I actually have a system. Yeah. An example of that would be personal space. You know, you, you don't measure with a ruler like, oh, this is the amount of space between me and someone in my culture that I have a conversation with. You just naturally stand there at the right distance mm-hmm. until you go to another culture where the space is like this and yep. you all of a sudden realize. So I think it's the same, particularly for uh, white people that, you know, uh, as a white person, you may not have realized that 
oh yes, my whiteness is a thing. It is a system that I operate in. And sometimes that system, you know, has been a point of oppression for others. But until you reflect on your own system, it's very, very hard to get there. So that for me is usually the starting point with clients is let's just reflect on ourselves, our own system and our own experiences. What were the values you had growing up as a child? You know, what, uh, what are the, uh, some of the rules and norms of your own culture? Yeah. And I'll even ask them, like, what am I doing that's cultural right now? You know, and, and there's like 50 things. And most people yeah. are like, oh, I don't know. Like so it's that point of, yeah, just yeah. my wedding rings on my left hand, you know, yeah. I'm speaking English, I'm wearing this type of clothing, I'm, I'm asking you your opinion, you know, these mm-hmm. kinds of things. And once people really kind of start to study their own culture, their own race, uh, their own just value system, I, I think that opens the door. That's lovely. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I keep, I think of that proverb, like a, a fish doesn't know that they're swimming in water until they, you know, are, have to come up into the air or whatever, you that's know? Right. <laughs> that's absolutely. Yeah. I love that one. Yeah. That's I, uh, right. I, when I, when I was younger, I was part of this organization called ISIC and their whole, um, mission was to get young people to travel more so mm. that they could, you know, have these other experiences and get out of their norms and things like that. Um, and I definitely think travel is a great kind of accelerator for you to realize what is your culture, what are your norms, but for people who don't have the privilege, you know, of being able to travel a lot or something like what, what do you think is a good way to, um, explore other cultures? Oh, that's a great question. I think there's a lot of options today with the internet, but you know, that's mm-hmm. also a danger because it can kind of uh, be more like surface, you know, yeah. than we need and, and we don't have necessarily the depth. Right. Or if you go seeking some culture, then you end up reinforcing um, stereotypes that you have. <laughs> that's a possibility. Yeah. Absolutely. Like, I don't recommend anybody watch Bollywood video. Oh, right, right. Bollywood is not Indian. Like, it's fun, but... It's a part of the entertainment there, but it is not. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I know I was really, (laughs) I was really concerned when Slumdog Millionaire came out. I was actually really upset about that movie. And I mean, it was, you know, it was an interesting story or whatever, but Mm -hmm. I was very concerned about, you know, the the sort of cementing of stereotypes. And I had to do a fair amount of uh, talking about that with clients because they were asking me about it. Oh, I bet. Well, I mean, it yeah. was produced by a British, uh, like correct a production company. So yeah, there you yeah. go. There's the colonialism, yeah. <laughs> right? Exactly. Yeah, that that was not my favorite film. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. you know, great acting and and everything. Um, I definitely admire the the performances and right and all of that. But I was concerned that my clients would watch it and kind of you know cement some of their stereotypes about India. Mm-hmm. But so I, I again, I shared my own experience of India, you know, and that helps. Yeah. So. I don't know. I mean, when it, when it comes to race in particular, I think right now what, what I'm hearing from my colleagues of color is people just want to be heard and not to have this sort of, yeah, but, you know, from, mm-hmm. uh, from others. It's, it's like, let me just share my experience and let me let me share what the impact has been on me. And so it's kind of that old saying, I know it's kind of an old, you know, model that's been around forever, but I do think it still applies that we need to listen for the impact and not the intent we had. So if, 
if I make a comment that someone of color, a person of color perceives negatively or as a racist idea or whatever, and they bring that to my attention, um, I need to focus on how that landed on them and not what I meant by it. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, that the, the listening experience is one of the ways that we can really be connecting and, and be broadening our horizons without travel is just to hear people's experiences as they are and not necessarily try to shape them with our own, you know, intent. And the same can be true for, uh, you know, for white people too. You can share your experience of your privilege or maybe you may not be aware of that yet. And so you can share your experience, but I think we need to do more listening, you know, to people of color right now because that's kind of what's been missing for a really long time. And uh, so I think, you know, we need to be sitting back and listening. As far as connecting with other cultures, I find that storytelling is one of the best ways to to connect. And uh, recently, our industry organization, SeaTAR, uh, had a conference, like a virtual conference, and they had this sort of virtual storytelling, you know, global storytelling. And somehow I feel like because we're almost genetically programmed to seek out stories and to want stories, that using that platform is just a way to ground us in our common humanity. And every time I share stories, you know, I find that people are just more receptive to the concepts, even if the concepts are difficult, you know, like like racism or discrimination or whatever. They, they come, they're a little bit more palatable in the shape of a story. Yes. So I'm I'm finding that to be a really powerful tool. And music, you know, I I mean that's a, that's a tool I use to connect with people from every kind of point of view and background. I mean, being in a band and being part of the music community means that you're just exposed to you know people from all different points of view. I mean, really, just a very wide spectrum. Yeah. But music is that sort of common denominator and it tends to unite us in a way that I've never seen anything else do other than food. (laughs) (laughs) No, I, I mean, music, it hits that lizard part of your brain, I think. Exactly. And then having a crowd experience, um, is, is another huge, like uniting force, I think. So I think that's amazing. I think it's so cool that you're part of a band. (laughs) I I did. It's very bizarre. (laughs) No, it's, I mean, (laughs) Um, why Rush? Why? why? So, so oh, you're wow. part of a That's... Rush cover band, right? That's... I am, okay. yes. So um, I'm in a Rush cover band called The Spirit of Rush. I yeah. watched a bunch of your videos and you guys rock hard. Like, you Thank you. are <laughs> amazing. Um, yeah, but I did want to ask, like, why Rush? Like, what's the... Oh, uh... wow. <laughs> well, you're talking to, like, one of the biggest Rush fans on earth. So my answer, the short answer would be because they're the greatest band that has ever you know, walk the face of the earth, yeah. bar none. But for the sake of inclusion, I'll say <laughs> I started doing live music performance um, quite late, you know, so I was b- about 40 when I started. And it was just a dream of mine to, to do that. And I'm used to being on a stage as a speaker because I do a lot of speaking conferences and things like that. And again, in this music community, I started meeting people from just every walk of life. And music just kind of gave us that common ground. And I started integrating it into my speaking and training because it felt very authentic to me to do that. I have loved Rush since I was 14 years old and I first heard them 
uh, I, I heard one of their songs drifting in from a friend's bedroom. And it literally stopped me in my tracks. Wow. And I was like, what is this song? And they said, this is called Natural Science by Rush. And I'm like, can I borrow that cassette? And I did. And I never gave it back to the person. <laughs> and that it just started this lifelong love affair with the music. And uh, I've had the privilege of meeting Rush a couple of times. And, oh, wow. and so I think that because I have this strong love for the music... And Rush fans do tend to be very loyal. And, you know, mm-hmm. when I formed this uh, band with my bandmates seven years ago, that authenticity, I think, is what the clients really appreciate and what and what our fans really appreciate, you know, is that we bring this genuine love for their music, but also for music as a way to bring people together. I feel like that's part of my sort of life purpose is to lift people up and bring them together. And music has just been one of the easiest ways to do that because so many of my clients are either musicians, like they play in bands themselves or they're closet musicians, mm-hmm. you know, they want, or they just love music. And so bringing that into the mix has just been, frankly, a very easy way to um, get people united yeah, and finding common ground, which I think, again, we need that very much right now. So we've been doing uh, a series of, I call them our pandemic garage series. So we've been playing with no audiences and we have a a huge garage at our disposal and we just do this socially distant uh, show that we live stream to our fans. And we've had people from New Zealand, Costa Rica, the UK, just all over the world tuning in. We never could have had that with uh, just doing a live performance at a a club or something. Mm -hmm. So it's amazing. That is so great. Um, I would love to get a link to your next show. I want next, be- Tuesday. next Tuesday. It's coming okay. up. Yes. I'll put, you know, if you send me the link, I'll put the link down in our, in our little YouTube description box and we'll wonderful try to get some ATD people on there too. That's great. You'll <laughs> enjoy it. Yeah. We've got some really ambitious material we're doing for this next show. So I can't wait. I cannot wait. My husband's a huge Rush fan actually. Um, oh my gosh. He, well, he needs- <laughs> he's like, he, he was like, I was like, who's Rush? You know, okay, so because I'm, I wasn't really. <laughs> and he was like, um, only the greatest drummer ever. But thank you. Like, yes, I agree it. with that statement. <laughs> he is one hundred percent correct. On yeah. That. So, so he he was just shocked and appalled that I didn't know who they were. Absolutely. But... <laughs> yes. Well, now you're, you know, you're getting on on board. So that's great. Now and, I know. Uh, yeah. Next Tuesday at seven p.m. Eastern on our page. And, awesome. Um, Okay, yeah. so circling back to diversity and inclusion, <laughs> not that music doesn't <laughs> um, mean it, you know, but um, okay, so way back, you know, when we were first talking about ACE, you sent this question to our, um, to our panelists, uh, and th- so this was your question. Um, anthropologist Dr. Wade Davis said, the world in which you were born is just one model of reality. Other cultures are not failed attempts at being you. They are unique manifestations of the human spirit. And your question was, how do we avoid imposing our model of reality on others? And more importantly, how do we leverage others' models of reality for the betterment of all? Mm-hmm. Um, so can we just, uh, so what? what is a model of reality, first of all? And then maybe we can get into kind of, you know, how do we impose how do we avoid imposing our model of reality on other people? Yeah, I think 
when I went to India, I guess it was somewhere in the early 2000s, and you know, I'd been traveling there many times, but I hadn't worked there yet. And the first time I worked there, I remember thinking, this is so amazing because there, there was such a sense of collaboration in the office in India. You know, I never ate lunch by myself. Yeah. Uh, there was just so much sort of back and forth and collaboration just right across the, you know, the desks. And, and I remember coming back to the U.S. and thinking, I'm going to take some of those same attributes and incorporate them into my model of reality, which was much more around independent working and things like that. And... I can honestly say it made me better. And so a lot of times people say, well, you know, if I go to another culture, do I have to adapt to them or, or do they need to adapt to me or, you know, what, what's the right thing to do there? And I don't think it's an either or statement. I think that if we recognize that there are multiple models of reality out there, we can allow other models of reality not to supersede our own, but to add to it. And to literally enrich us. So, you know, to put it as simplified way that other cultures make us better. And the challenge with that is, again, going back to that self-awareness. If you don't know that you have a model of reality by which you operate in, or a culture that you operate in, or a, a race or ethnicity that you operate in, you, the human brain tends to think that that way, your way, is the way things ought to be. This is just our natural human reaction if we don't know the way our own system operates. And if we think that our way is the way things ought to be, we may never say that out loud or even think it consciously, but it's kind of how humans function, you know. And so if we if we are not aware of that, we are impo- we will likely be imposing our model of reality on others whether we are aware of it or not. So once again, it comes back to what is your model of reality? What are your norms and beliefs? What are some of your values? Uh, like, let's say you might have a value around everyone should be treated equally. And so that might then, when you grow up and become like an HR director, that might lead you to say something like this. Let's say you have a diverse team in your um, department, lots of people from different uh, you know, races and and ethnicities, backgrounds, etc. And you say, you know, I love working with this diverse team and I don't see color. I just see all these people as individuals. That sounds nice because maybe you were raised with this value of everyone is equal. But saying I don't see color is like saying I don't see a vital part of someone's identity. And so it is, you know, we, we have to, we have to study our own values, how we were brought up, um, what our cultural influences were and are. Even the geography, you know, you think about the U.S. is very spread out and like India is like a third the size of the U.S., but, you know, mm-hmm. so even just the the way that people interact based on geographical components is influencing how you behave and how you... So if we are not aware of that, that's that's where we start imposing. And again, that imposition is not always conscious, Sometimes it is, and that's kind of where colonialism comes in. Right? Mm-hmm. But even then, you could say, well, maybe some of these people genuinely believe that you know their way was this better way, yeah. and so on, uh, and it did great damage. So I think that is the crucial first step. We have to 
you know, we have to do that. And, and then we have to pursue difference. We have to go out of our way to pursue points of view, uh, cultures, generations, etc., that are different from our own. If we stay in a bubble, and this is one thing that's very dangerous about social media, is that, you know, you get that confirmation bias because the algorithms kind of feed you things that mm-hmm. agree with what you already think. Uh, we have to go out of our way to pursue that difference and to continually challenge ourselves with that. So, uh, yeah, and, and in doing so is kind of hard work, but I firmly believe it enriches your life and makes you better. Yeah, I totally agree. Thank you so much. Um, I'm gonna end. I'm gonna end it there because I. I mean, I have so many other. I want. I want to talk to you for hours. But same here. <laughs> um, but I think this is a good place to end it. I. I so appreciate you being on our show, Vicky. Thank you so much. Um, if you have any resources or anything that you want to share with our audience, you can send them to me, and I'll you know include them in the links and everything. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, and. Uh, yeah, I just want to say thanks. Thanks again. And um, to everybody watching, stay safe, uh, you know, go vote. Um, <laughs> and uh, we'll see you at the next episode next week. All right. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you.